0: Well, if you want to grab your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 5, Exodus chapter 5, we are working our way through this series that we've called Building the People of God, and uh, it's important to uh, kind of regularly reorient around the kind of the entirety of this work. It's an incredible story that's unfolding, and we're kind of looking at it one narrative at a time, but uh, from an Old Testament perspective, it's really the, the singular best work in the Old Testament on what's classically called spiritual formation, the idea of God forming himself, his character and his will, his desires into his people. And and so that work of spiritual formation is what we're really wrestling with as we study. What's it look like for God to uh, to form his heart into us? Our our goal is not to have uh, kind of top-level behavior change, but rather heart change, desire change, change at the love level as the, the character of Jesus is formed in us. And so as we do that, there's a couple of things that we started with that I'm going to kind of regularly bring you back to as we journey through this, uh, through this series. The first one is this. This story that we're reading is our story. This is, yes, a story from almost 4,000 years ago of God uh, using a specific person to deliver a specific people from a specific context. And there's a, a, certainly a historical element to it. But there's also an element in which this is our story. That's why this story is so important, because this work of deliverance and formation is the work that God is continuing to do in us. We are those people who are being delivered. We are those people who are being formed into the image of Christ. And so this story is important because it's our story. The other thing that we said way back at the beginning and is vitally important, especially for today, as we look at Exodus chapter 5, is the reminder that God is making all things new, not making all new things. And see, a lot of us, we really want the new things. We want the, it's new, it's, it's fresh, it's, it's done. But see, God is always in the midst of a restoration project. And although God sometimes does make new things in an instant, the vast majority of time, God is working a restoration project that requires lots of stripping away And lots of tearing apart before it can be built back together and and coded once again. There's a process that takes time. And that time is part of our wrestling because we want things to happen now. And God is moving at a very different pace with a very different plan. And so this story is our story and God is in the process of making all things new. So, um, this week I was doing some reading, just kind of digging around, and I came across a uh, late 20th century British political theorist, you know, as as you do. Um, I know you... you uh, <laughs> Look, don't judge me. I don't like sitcoms. You watch sitcoms. I read British political theorists. That's the way it goes. That's the way I did it on my time. It's fine. Anyway, guy named Michael Oakeshott. um, He uh, he was uh, writing through the eighties, specifically, died in the late eighties, early nineties, and uh, posthumously there was a volume of all of his thought put together, and it's what actually drew me into his thinking, because it's titled, "The Politics of Faith and the Politics of Skepticism." I thought, well, that's interesting. Now, this is written back in the 80s. Well, the thought was back in the 80s, pu- published in the early 90s. And basically what Okashot said was this, that um, he he about the politics of faith. I think for our understanding, it's better to think of as the politics of hope because faith, we think of faith in something uh, supernatural, something uh, greater than us. But really what he's talking about, I'll call the politics of hope, is kind of a, um, a, a a humanistic effort that would bring utopia. This idea that if we just work together and the government has enough control and we have enough uh, kind of centralized power, we can make everything better. So the idea of the politics of hope is that if if we just step into it, if we look out on the horizon, utopia is coming. It's right around the corner. Now, if you look back, um, interestingly, it was uh, more than 20 years later, just about 20 years later, when Barack Obama ran for president on effectively the prototypical campaign of the politics of hope on the idea of if we just centralize a lot of control and we uh, all work better, we can be better people. And in the end, we're going to have a, a, a society where everything's taken care of and everything's better. Now, what okashot said is that the politics of hope, when fully realized, will always give way to frustration because hope, never follows all the way through. And so if you look at the way American politics worked, there was this swing that happened that Oakeshott predicted 20 years earlier that moved to what he called the politics of skepticism. And the politics of skepticism basically are that anything large and anything powerful can't be trusted. So uh, whether that's large government or large organizations or experts of any kind, um, I, I summarize it where, uh, where two or three are gathered, you have a problem. That's kind of the way that Okusha talked about it. Like, it's, if you bring people together, you got, you got issues. And so the politics of skepticism, fascinatingly, became the prototype of the way that Donald Trump ran for president in 2016. The whole idea of drain the swamp and don't trust anybody and let's get rid of all these people. It's exactly what Oakeshott said. But what his thinking said was that you can't live on either extreme. You can't live in the politics of hope because they will always disappoint you. And you can't live in the politics of skepticism because you'll never move anywhere. And what, what Oakeshott said is that healthy societies always live somewhere in between, but our nature always swings from one side to another. Now, I'll let you dig into that as much as you want from a political theory perspective, but it's fascinating as it relates to Exodus chapter 5. Because in Exodus chapter 5, you're going to watch in one chapter Israel swing from full of hope all the way to full of skepticism, and all the way along that swing, just as we often do, they're going to miss God completely. So what do you do when you're full of hope And that hope gives way to skepticism. And somewhere in between is God. That's the story we're going to look at today. Let me just give you a little background before Michael comes to read for us. Um, remember, at the end of Exodus chapter 4, God had been interacting with Moses, calling Moses, and finally Moses uh, has given in to God. He uh, leaves Midian, is going to Egypt. He sees Aaron along the way, as promised by God. They have, uh, they, they have a connection, and then the elders of Israel come, and uh, Moses uses the signs and the wonders that God's gave, given him, that gives them the message that God gives them, and they're just full of excitement. They're, they're, they, they know That the God of the universe has heard their cries, has seen their suffering, and is moving on their behalf. So that's the optimism that we come out of Exodus 4 with into Exodus chapter 5. We're going to cover the whole chapter today, but uh, Michael's just going to read for us the first nine verses and then the last two, and then just kind of round the corner with one verse into Exodus 6 verse 1. So you can follow along, or you can listen as Michael reads
1: Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to the Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, has said. Release my people so that they may hold a pilgrim feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by releasing Israel? I do not know the Lord, and I will not release them. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God so that he does not strike us with plague or the sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you cause the people to refrain from their work? Return to your labor. Pharaoh was thinking, the people of the land are now many, and you are giving them rest from their labor. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the slave masters and foremen who were over the people, you must no longer give straw to the people for making bricks as before. Let them go and collect straw for themselves." But you must require of them the same quota of bricks they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. This is why they are crying, Let us go sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men, so they will keep at it and pay no attention to lying words. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? Why did you ever send me? From the time I went to speak to Pharaoh in your name, he has caused trouble for this people. And you have certainly not rescued them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For compelled by my strong hand, he will release them, and by my strong hand, he will drive them out of his land.
0: Thank you, Michael. This is the word of God. So I want to look at this under two primary headings. I want to look at the idea of what it means to lose hope and what it means to find hope what it means to lose hope and what it means to find hope. I know that's only two points. That's because that's the way the, the passage breaks down. That does not mean it's short. It just means it's two points. Just so we're clear, I don't want you to have false expectations. All right, so we're coming in uh, after all of this hope and all of this excitement around the corner of Exodus chapter 4 into Exodus chapter 5. Moses and Aaron, uh, it's almost like they burst into Pharaoh's palace. Like, they're, they're so excited because the expectation is, God's about to do something. God's about to work and they, they run in and we can tell that they're not paying a lot of attention because they're not actually doing the things that God told Moses to do. There's a bunch of specific things that they missed. I think just because they're overflowing with hope. Have you ever been in that place where you like, you have so much excitement about what God's going to do. You start to kind of miss the details. There's, there's little things that get missed because you just know like God's, God's about to do something, right? So Moses and Aaron show up. They're supposed to bring the elders of Israel with them. They forgot, or they didn't come, or something happened. Who knows? Moses and Aaron show up before Pharaoh, and they they come with a message. Now, this may sound like a small distinction to you, but God said to Moses, tell Pharaoh the God of the Hebrews has spoken to you. And Moses came and said, the God of Israel has spoken to me. Now, that seems like a pretty small distinction, but the Hebrews are a people group, that are subjugated by Egypt. So they're they're people that are being uh, held by Egypt, enslaved by Egypt. Israel is a political entity, a country that's seeking freedom. One of those is far more inflammatory than the other one. And of course, Moses said it wrong. Uh, He says, the God of Israel uh, has met with us. And then he says, and he told us to go out and have a big festival, now, God didn't say anything about a festival. I think Moses just got excited. He was ready for a festival. He was fired up. And so he came and said all of this. Here's what I want you to see. I don't think that Pharaoh would have responded any differently had Moses said it exactly right. But what we see in Moses is this thing that shows up in us all the time, where, where we're so excited that we begin to hold God to a promise he never made. And that's where we start to run into some major issues. When we start to hold God to a promise that he never gave us and then we hold him accountable for not coming through, we start to run into major problems. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that in a minute. I want to keep going with the story. So Moses comes in. He makes this request before Pharaoh. Pharaoh's response is, God who? Like, I don't know what God you're talking about. Um, I, I don't know the God of Israel. And even if I did, I wouldn't let the people go. And, you know, Moses and Aaron have to be saying, um, that's not your line. Like, you have a line. That's not the right one. You're supposed to say, oh, God showed up? Please go. But that's not what you're saying. Like, I don't understand what's going on. There's this, there's this tension that comes in. So Moses and Aaron now kind of back up a step. And they ask again, but now their asking is a little bit more polite. So they now say the God of the Hebrews. And, and, and it's great because you, you see it in the, in the ESV. It says uh, in verse 3, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a 3 days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. Now, God didn't say anything about pestilence and sword. This is Moses is now riffing, right? He's like trying to like figure out how I can get around this thing. But, and basically the heart of what Moses is saying is, oh, okay, sorry, I didn't ask nicely enough the last time, but now I said, please, right? And Pharaoh's like, um, I don't care that you said, please. Like that's, that wasn't the thing, right? So Pharaoh's response back to Moses is uh, effectively, who do you guys think you are? which had to come as a, like an arrow to Moses. Because remember, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, what we've been wrestling with is that Moses, uh, Moses doesn't know who he is. Moses has been going through all of these identity issues, wrestling with all, like, am I an Israelite? Am I an Egyptian? Am I a leader? Or am I a shepherd? Or wh- who am I? And finally, he gets up enough nerve to go before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's response to him is, who do you think you are? And Moses has to be saying, yeah. Like, who, who am I? What was I thinking? What in, the world, what, what in the world am I doing here? And then Pharaoh says, one, I'm not going to let them know, go. And two, I'm going to make that work a ton harder for you. So now, instead of just making bricks, now you have to go out and find the straw in order to put in the bricks in order to make the bricks. So um, th- th- there's this sense of hope that we come into Exodus 5 with. It's like if you picture a sponge, like just completely filled up with water. There's all of this hope in in the people of Israel, and inside of five minutes, Pharaoh has like squeezed that all out, and all that hope has become like disappointment and maybe even disillusionment. Have you ever gotten to that place? That place where you're like full of hope, full of, like, I know I'm doing what God's called me to do. I know I'm walking down his path. I know I'm doing the right stuff. And it just like, uh, wall after wall after wall, it's just not working. Like, God, where are you in this? What in the world is going on? It's not supposed to be like this. I remember, um, I was thinking this week, it's crazy to me to think this, but I'm going into my 12th year as the lead pastor at York Alliance, which is impossible because I'm not that old. So I don't know how that happened. But anyway, um, so back in 2010, um, there was this sense as I was stepping into this role, this sense that was at least in me and, and some of us as we were kind of praying together of just like excitement and optimism and like there's, there's something God's doing here. Like There's just this movement that was like that was kind of like, uh, I'm not sure where we're going, but it's really, really exciting. It's really, really cool. And so that was kind of as we came into 2010. And then um, I, I had kind of my first major uh, counseling thing where there was a, a couple that came in for marriage counseling, and I remember sitting with them and listening to their story, and I remember thinking, um, I hope somebody knows what to do with this because I have no idea what to do. <laughs> I am... <laughs> I am so far over my head, like I have no, I I actually thought, like, who do I call? Oh, wait, they're calling me. Like, that's not good. (laughs) And so um, when I realized that I was actually supposed to be the one that had the answer, and I knew I didn't have any answers, I thought, well, um, let's just pray a lot. And so we started to pray, and we started to read the Bible, and we started to really wrestle. And it was incredible. Within like a month, God had done this miraculous work, and it was unbelievable. Now all of a sudden, you have like optimism and excitement and, and hope, and now power of God. God's doing stuff in the middle of it. And that lasted for like three months. And then... (sighs) like everything just like we started losing people and we started losing finances and we started losing optimism and we started losing excitement and all of a sudden we were like uh, like what what just happened and it was like that whole thing. It was like everything getting wrung out. And if you've ever been in that place where you lose people and you lose finances and you lose, lose optimism and excitement, you start to gain frustration and tension with one another. That was really fun. Um, and at the same time, um, our family's trying to transition to me being a lead pastor instead of a staff pastor. And the schedule's different and the pressures are different. And so it was not fun at home. It wasn't fun at work. And we're just in that place where it was like, this is, this is really hard. Like, I don't know if I like this. I remember thinking, I was good at making handbags. Maybe I should go do that. That seems, you know, I could go back to women's clothing and that seems to be a great career path. Like that seems to be a good move because that's what happens, right? You get to this place where hope gets wrung out and you get to a place of desperation and, and in, the, in that desperation and disappointment, what you think is, there's got to be something I can do. And that's what we find in this story. So um, so Pharaoh says to the Israelites, you need to now go gather your own straw to make your own bricks, and the quotas aren't going to change, and you're going to have to keep working, keep working, keep working, and you to be punished if it doesn't work. Verse 15, the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, listen to what they say, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Inside of two verses, three different times, they affirm to Pharaoh, we are your people. We are serving you. I don't know what this Moses and Aaron got, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know who that God is either. We're your servants. We're with you. They immediately revert back. The first way we lose hope is holding God to a promise he never made. The second way is holding God to a timetable that he's never established. See, the people of God have been told, God is going to bring you freedom. He is going to deliver you from Egypt. But as soon as pressure mounts, their response is, let me go back to what I can control. And and look, they're they're not evil people. They, they, They weren't going back to Pharaoh because they loved to be slaves. They're going back to Pharaoh because they wanted comfort, because they wanted to not be punished and to suffer. They wanted a little bit of ease. The challenge for us is not that we're going after bad things. It's that we're going after lesser things. That's what happened to the Israelites. They're saying, we would rather, rather than suffer, we would rather be slaves to Pharaoh. Because at least if, if we can establish an equilibrium, it wasn't really that bad. Tim Chester, in his book on Exodus, says it this way. When you don't get what you want, the true affections of your heart are revealed. That you love the blessings of Christ more than you love Christ himself. You trust him when he gives you what you want, but you don't trust him when trouble comes, which means you don't trust him at all. See, for many of us, we get pushed to the edge. We get to that place where hope we're filled with hope and hope gets like squeezed out of us and we end up in that place of disappointment. And at that moment when we should be turning to Jesus, what we do is turn to what we can control. We lose hope because we're holding God to a timetable that he didn't establish. And that leads in to the third way that we lose hope, which is plain and simple, idolatry. See, the the thing that is happening here in this narrative, it's kind of hard for us to get in in English, but between verses 9 all the way through verse 21, the, the narrative is going to use the word for serve seven different times. The word serve in Hebrew is the word abah, and the word worship in Hebrew is the word abah. Exactly the same word. To mean slightly nuanced but the same things. Will the people serve Pharaoh, or will the people worship God? The heart of this passage is this tug of war between the God of Israel and Pharaoh, the Lord of Egypt, to see whether the hearts of the Israelites would go towards one way or the other way. And by the time we get to the end of this chapter, what we find is that Pharaoh seems to have won round one. We're your servants. We're your servants. We're your servants. Idols for most of us, in the midst of following Jesus, are not evil things. They're good things. They're just not ultimate things. And what happens with idols is that we take something good, comfort and ease, lack of suffering, not, not having to worry about whether we're going to be beaten the next day or not. Those are good things. And we make them ultimate things. And the problem with idols is that they can never fulfill the promise they make. See, the challenge that the Israelites are going to have is the max that they have under Pharaoh is being comfortable slaves. The best they can do is to have a little bit of prosperity when given at the whim of Pharaoh's willingness to give them prosperity. That's the cap. That's the top. They, They can't worship the idol of comfort and get freedom because the idol can't give them that. We lose hope when we hold God to a promise he never made. We lose hope when we hold God to a timetable that he didn't establish. We lose hope when we try to serve a God that doesn't exist. So how do we find hope? What's it look like to uh, begin to engage in a, uh, a way that moves us toward hope? Well, the first thing that we need to, to admit is that there's no one in Exodus 5 who actually knows God. Pharaoh says it outright, right? So if you go back to verse 2, Pharaoh says, I don't know who God is. I have no idea who who you're talking about. I don't know the God of Israel. And if I did, I wouldn't let you go anyway, but I don't know who that is. So that kind of makes sense to us. But what we find out very quickly is the people of God don't know who God is right? Like God has said, I'm going to come and deliver you. And at the first sign of problems, they're like, we don't know who he is. We're we're serving Pharaoh. We're, We're with Pharaoh. So by their actions, they say they don't know who God is. But by the time we get to the end, we find out that Moses himself, the one to whom God has revealed himself, the one who God has said, this is specifically who I am. And this is specifically the message. And you're the messenger that's to carry the message. He comes before God. Listen to what he says. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. You're being a lousy God. You're no good at this, right? Like he's, he's coming to God with this deep level of frustration. So, so Pharaoh doesn't know God. The people of God don't know God. And Moses, the agent of God, the deliverer, doesn't know God either. J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, great book that I've recommended a couple weeks ago, he says this about the knowledge of God. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself... So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it disappointing and an unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God. And you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. Packer's effectively saying this. We live in God's world, and if we're going to exist in his world, we should know him. And what we find in Exodus 5 is this group of people who don't know him. And and I don't mean that they don't, they're not aware of him. Like the, the people of God know that God's on the move. Pharaoh's even aware of God being on the move through Moses. Moses is certainly aware. He just saw the burning bush. He's aware that God's on the move. But they, don't, they haven't shaped their lives around the essence of God. They have a doctrine without a, a life that's following it, without a, without a real belief. And it's in that transformation that that knowledge of God starts to give us hope in the middle of the struggle that we're, we're wrestling with. The, the, the answer to the question, how do we find hope is going to come in its fullness in chapter six. So next week, we're going to dive through chapter six. There's a lot in there and I want to save that without trying to uh, summarize it this week. But, but I do want to just turn the corner to verse one of, of verse, of chapter six. Listen to, this is after God, uh, God is hearing from Moses. So Moses comes to God. He says, you're doing evil things. You have not delivered your people at all. Listen to what God says. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So notice what God does not say to Moses. He does not say, Moses, would you get back to leadership? I called you to lead this people, you're following them. Like, cut it out. Don't call me evil you're bad, I'm good. That's what I would have said if I was God, right? Like, like, what are you doing? You can't call me evil. Like, don't tell me how to be God. I'm God, you're not, cut it out, right? But that's, that's what he says. He, he says, Moses, I still have a plan. A- and as he reminds him of his plan, part of what he's reminding Moses of is the part that if you've been reading through Exodus, you would immediately remember, which is that in, in Exodus chapter three, And again in Exodus chapter 4, God said to Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh, you're going to tell him to let my people go, and he's going to harden his heart and not do it. God already told him that. And yet, Moses is so worked up that he hardened his heart and wouldn't do it. Like, Moses is not really listening to God. He's not knowing all about the the truth of who God is. And for so many of us, this is our story. Like, throughout the Bible, you're going to see this happen again and again. The one that just cracks me up is uh, with with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, When they finally start to recognize that Jesus is Messiah, Jesus says to them over and over again, like a dozen times recorded in the Gospels, that I am going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed by the Roman authorities at the hands of the Jewish leaders. I'm going to die And three days later, I'm going to rise again. This was not a secret. He told them that over and over and over and over again. And then you see them around the cross and Jesus is dying. And all of the followers of Jesus are just like in despair. Like there's no sense that there's another chapter coming. Like, he told them again and again and again, I'm going to die on a cross. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And as they're looking at him on the cross, there's nothing that triggers in their mind. Like, oh, wait, he said this was coming. What's crazy is the Jewish leaders, the ones who sent him to the cross, they knew like, they go to the Roman authorities, and they're like, hey, this dude said he was coming back in three days, so could we put, like, a soldier's thing here and make sure that, that he did not come out? Because we're afraid he's going to be coming out. Like, the Jewish leaders know, but his own people don't know. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us came to faith under a promise that God never made? Like... If you just come and pray a prayer and trust your life to Jesus, your life will be so much better than it is right now. Your life will will just turn around and you're gonna be able to experience blessing and goodness. The best is yet to come, my least favorite hashtag in the whole world. Like, this, this idea that, that if, as soon as you start following Jesus, life just goes upward. Everything just gets better. Everything's just going to be great. Just wait. Once you, you, You're going to bow the knee to him, and you're going to start to follow him, and your life's just going to turn around. The problem with that is the entirety of the scriptures. Like, if you read the Bible, if you're, like, really, like, I, I'm talking New Testament now. If you're a New Testament scholar, you should be shocked when things are going well. <laughs> because, like, there's not a lot of that right? Like, it's, it's rough. Like, like, does God promise good things to his people? Absolutely he does. Like, uh, that, that, that we will have life and life to the full. That's a, a beautiful promise that we should grab onto. But you know what else is a promise? They hated me, they're going to hate you. How many of you have that in your office? Like, uh, you know, it's just right, it's like on the window as you're doing the dishes, like, they're going to hate me. Like, right? Like, that's a promise. Like, he told you that was coming. You shouldn't be surprised by that. Right. here's another one in this world you will have trouble that's a promise like I promised that was coming and yet trouble comes and we're like "Whoa! Well, oh, that, well that's not fair I have been, I've been obeying God like I've been doing the, like, I didn't look at that thing on the computer that I shouldn't have looked at I was nice to that person who was really mean I didn't yell at the person in traffic the other day Like I, God should be blessing me so, number one problem that we could have when we lose hope holding God to a promise he never made right? He never said, if you behave, I will bless you. Don't worry. But we think, like if I get up in the morning and I do my devotions and I pray and I I, I try to love people, God is just going to bless me. In this world, you will have trouble, a promise of Jesus. But the other side of that promise is also true. But take heart, I have overcome the world. See, what Jesus is saying is not that it's not going to be a struggle. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be frustration. There's going to be times where all the hope is just squeezed right out of you. But this is not the final answer. This is not the end. And that's what he's saying. Like, like it, it, the best is yet to come, if by to come you mean primarily in eternity on Jesus, uh, on, on Jesus' spectrum, the way that he sees stuff. Like, in the end, the best truly is yet to come. But Henry Nouwen said it's a brilliant way. He, said, he says, following Jesus is, uh, is the gospel of downward mobility. I think that's great. He's like, you know, it's just, it's, it's tough. Like, think, if you're really following Jesus, things don't always go really well. And Jesus' response to that is not, I'm going to fix it. Jesus' response to that is, take heart, I've overcome the world. This is not all there is. Like, Jesus didn't promise that it would be good. Jesus promised that he'd be with you. Jesus didn't promise that you wouldn't struggle, but that you wouldn't be alone in the struggle. And I think for a lot of us, our answer then is, well, I, I probably just need to lower my expectations. Like, if I just, if I just um, look around at the world and just figure it's going to be bad all the time, then I won't be disappointed. You know, I just, just assume everything's going to be terrible. Like, go back to me uh, as a pastor in, in 2010. If my response was, oh man, this is really hard. I don't, I, this, I, this is a struggle. I don't really like this. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm just going to put out in front of me, I want to have a mediocre church that lacks in spiritual power. That'd be awesome. Like, that's what I'm shooting for. I really want a, a, a group of people who are half-heartedly lukewarm following after Jesus, and myself, I want to be lukewarm too. And then, if anything's better than that, it'll be a, it'll be a win right? Like if I just, if I hold that as the standard, then pretty much everything's good from there, right? Jesus doesn't call us to lower our standards. In fact, he calls us to have incredibly high hopes, to dream of the incredible things that God can do, and then hold them with open hands, and then recognize that he may do them in a totally different way than we think he will. The problem with Exodus 5 is not that they're, that the people were hoping for deliverance, the problem was they were hoping for their kind of deliverance on their agenda in their way. I remember back in 2010 reading um, about the, the friends of Daniel. You probably remember the story if, uh, from no other time than from Sunday school. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they won't serve the king, and so they're going to get tossed into the fiery furnace. You remember that story? And as the king came to them and said, like, look, guys, you need to worship me because if you don't worship me, you're going into the furnace. You remember what they said? They said, "Uh, our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship you. High standard, open hands. I know God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not backing down. Like, I know that God can powerfully catch the church on fire. But even if he doesn't, I'm not walking away. I know God can heal that disease. And we're going to pray and ask and trust in faith. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to worship him. I know that God can restore relationship. I know that God can use us powerfully in the world. I know he can. But even if he doesn't, that's not the point. The point is him. The challenge of Exodus chapter 5 is that disappointment became the defining factor for the Israelite people. And every time we get there, we have to decide. We will, over and over and over again, be in that position where all the hope is squeezed out. And at that moment, we decide. Do I turn back to God or do I turn to myself? Do I fix it? Do I go after something lesser? The great thing that Moses did in Exodus 5, even though he came back right at God, was that he came back to God. And and the Psalms, as Jessica so well led us into, are full of these, these expressions before God where, where David and other psalmists are coming and they're just saying, God, where are you? Like, I, I'm doing what you called me to do and you're not there. Full of desperation. All the hope has been wrung out. All they have is desperation, but they're coming back to him. And, and what happens is God turns their hearts as they come back to him. Every time we reach that point of disappointment, we have to decide, am I turning back to God or am I turning to myself? Am I just gonna settle with Eh. Or am I going to have incredibly high expectations with open hands? Am I going to come back to the God who is able and then trust him to do it his way? Some of you are in the middle of that season right now. You you feel that wrung out, that like all of the hope is gone, and it's just kind of eh. And God desires to meet you in the middle of it. Not make it better necessarily wish i had better news for you but he desires to meet you there and the god who is able will redeem it we just don't know how we don't know what that's going to look like and if you're not in that you may come here today and you're just full of hope and you're good like you're in a great place and that's great but it could be a day or a week or a month at some point in time that's all getting squeezed out that's the way it works and when we get there will we be people who turn back to god Story of Exodus 5 is the lead into Exodus 6 where the grace of God comes to Moses and says, you have a plan. Your plan is that Pharaoh would say, go with blessing. My plan is, not only is Pharaoh going to let you go, he's going to send you out and he's going to send you out prosperous. But it's going to be a different path than you think. So hold the expectation, but keep your hands open. And so I want to ask you to take just a couple minutes because each of our situations is different. Some of us are in the middle of hope right now, and we're saying this is all a hypothetical for me. <laughs> At some point in time, I'm probably going to have to deal with this. And so I just need to start to wrestle with it now. But for some of you, right in the middle of that, that disappointment, even desperation, and disillusionment right now. And so many people turn away from God because they're holding God to a promise that he never made. And so this is an opportunity for us to come to him and just say, God, I, I know that you're able, but give me the grace to stick with you, whether you do or not, to trust you in the middle of it. And so I want to give you just a couple moments of silence. The worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us in a minute, but I, I want to just take some time for the spirit to speak to you wherever you're at, and to meet you in the midst of that moment of, ah, now what? And so I'm going to ask you if you just close your Bibles and put your notes over to the side and and just take a minute before the Lord. Um, Maybe you want to actually hold your hand open before him as just a sign of saying, uh, God, uh, use me right here. Meet me right where I'm at. And let's just ask him to come and meet us. So would you just close your eyes and if you want to extend your hands, you can do that or just kind of put yourself in a position where you can hear from the Spirit and let's just allow him to speak to us. Jesus, we invite you to come and to meet us in the midst of disappointment frustration the difficulty the times when it just seems like you're not coming through and give us the grace to come back to you not to your blessings not to your hand but back to you and so God we seek your face we come seeking your truth and so holy spirit speak i'm just going to give a minute or two of silence to allow the spirit to speak in